Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm here with Luann Hamza, professor of history at William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, to talk about her new book, Village Infernos and Witches Advocates, Witch Hunting in Navarre, 1609 to 1614, out this year, 2022, with Penn State University Press. Hello, Luann, and welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much, Jan. It's delightful to be here. Great. Um, yeah. So how are you? How's your morning? My morning is excellent. Um, I received some emails from Madrid this morning asking for copies of the book with a possible translation in the works um, in Navarre. So, of course, that's every author's dream. And um, so I'm, I'm a very happy camper right now. Very happy. <laughs> so at and, and, I'm, and I'm really glad the book is becoming available um, through Amazon and Walmart beyond the press. And uh, I had the delightful task of sending out copies to people who mentored me in Spain and um, people who have supported me throughout this very long process of writing. And so that's just delightful. That's great. Oh, that is wonderful. Good and congratulations. Good news. Well, well-deserved. It's a really good book. Oh, thank you very much. Um, Okay, so our first job is to figure out how you came to write this. And looking through your CV, I can see uh, that this, this makes some sense for you. But like, tell us how you landed on this book. Well, um, it, was, it seemed logical to take up this topic next after my first book and then my collection of primary sources from the Spanish Inquisition. My first book dealt a little bit with witchcraft in terms of treatises by learned theologians. And then for the, um, the primary source reader, I ended up translating the proceedings of a 1526 conference held on witches and what to do about witches. And the witches in question were in Navarre and the Congress itself was held in Granada under the auspices of Emperor Charles V. So I thought to myself, nobody has looked at Inquisitor Salazar and the Navarrese witch hunt in some 30 years. I'll give it a shot. I was most concerned at the beginning with Salazar himself, like all my predecessors have been. He's legendary. Um, the historians who came before me wanted to make him into a proto-modern skeptic. And I was convinced that, in fact, he was really a very learned Catholic lawyer in the early 17th century. And so my original aim was to restore him to his historical context. So we all thought that the only important sources, the only surviving sources for this witch persecution were in Madrid, in the National Historical Archive, in an enormous dossier of some 900 folios. So I followed my predecessor's lead and spent a couple of years trying to get through that dossier in Madrid. None of the materials therein are in chronological order. There's no index. So you really have to start from scratch in terms of figuring out the sequence of the documents, who the actors are, and so on. And then everything changed when I took a trip to Pamplona. Um, and at that point, it was a whim. I thought the Bishop of Pamplona was involved in this witch hunt in ways we don't fully appreciate. Maybe there will be something there. Well, to my shock and awe and delight, the archives in Pamplona are overflowing with materials related to this witch hunt. And none of us realized that, and we should have, because witchcraft is a mixed crime, what we call a mixed crime in the early modern period, meaning that it consists of physical harm as well as spiritual harm. And so as a result, every legal jurisdiction is interested in witches. Bishops are interested. Secular judges are interested and inquisitors are interested. And so it wasn't just the inquisition that was involved in this persecution. 
It was also the Bishopric of Pamplona. And then as accused witches began to sue their torturers, the secular court in Pamplona became involved as well. So in a nutshell, we've, we've discovered so far eight cases, eight trials and eight lawsuits in the Royal Archive of Navarre relating to this witch hunt. We've found probably 15 or 20 notarial records um, related to the witch hunt. The diocesan archive, because the bishop has his own court in this particular period of time, the diocesan archive has a massive trial of a witch torture priest from the village of Eratsu who made his parishioners' lives miserable for two full years, accusing them of witchcraft, imprisoning them, torturing them. All of this is illegal. And then finally, we found a divorce case in the diocesan archive filed by a female witch suspect who was set up for witchcraft accusations by her stepson and her second husband. And her divorce case was successful. And after that, unfortunately, she disappears from the record. But so that's it in a nutshell. I just stumbled on um, a wealth of documentation that nobody knew existed. And so as a result, the project has taken some 12 years to complete. Because as I noted in my acknowledgments, every time we turned around, we kept finding more sources. Two of these trials were only discovered in 2014 and 2018 by archivists at the Royal Archive in Pamplona. They were uncatalogued. They were in a box in the basement. And they're astonishing. They come from a village called Olague, which is just north of Pamplona. And they feature dozens of depositions of self-identified child witches, ranging in age from 5 to 15. And when I say self-identified, these kids in court say, somos los niños embrujados of Olague, as if they're in a now special category. So that's sure. my story. Yeah, <laughs> and, and how... That's such a great story. Oh, there's so much I want to unpack here. Um, let's start, like, first of all, let's start with the idea that you can still just stumble upon new material in archives, which I think is probably a surprise to people who don't do history or don't spend any time in archives. Oh, well, it's absolutely true because um, no one has successfully cataloged, for instance, notarial records, which exist by the thousands. And when you request them, they come in boxes. And the boxes are composed of little individual pieces of paper. And the papers are numbered, but you can't go anywhere to find a list of what's in the box. So as a result, I'm going through relevant notaries who are active, very active, very prominent during this witch hunt. And lo and behold, there's a peace contract uh, enforced between villagers and witches to make them stop abusing each other. Um, we found an inventory of what a witch owned as she was being arrested and sent to the Inquisition in Legrono. Um, so, you know, it, it's common right now um, in my field for people to think, and, and this is true, that archives are extremely privileged repositories, and archives actually silence a lot of um, historical subjects, depending upon what the authorities deem worthy to keep and worthy to catalog. But at the same time, depending upon what you're looking for, archives can still be absolutely full of surprises. Um, and we owe so much to these archivists who keep looking and keep cataloging um, and keep digitizing. Uh, it's, it's amazing. So I should note that none of the sources in Pamplona are digitized, but the diocesan archive has a 41-volume catalog compiled by its former, soon-to-be 90-year-old archivist, Don Jose Luis Sales Tirapu, who has spent 30 years reading all of the 100,000 
plus trials in that archive and who created a catalog of them. And Don Jose Luis was kind enough to provide an index to every one of the 41 volumes of the catalog, which means I can go and look for witches. I can look for violence. I can look for all kinds of things and then find them. So, you know, these people are unsung heroes of the historical profession. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That is absolutely beautiful. That's wonderful. Okay. So witchcraft fil- fits into your private, your previous work, right? That's part of kind of the religious, um, the, you know, kind of the, the community, the zeitgeist really, you might, of the of this period. It fits into your interests. You stumble upon this magnificent um, collection of material that is as yet unseen, and you decide to put it together. And you come across I mean, some some really impressive, like your source material is very rich and you come up with some really interesting, rich stories, right? Some really great things. Um, and I'm thinking like our listeners probably don't know much about what a witch does or how what it looks like when a witch is being accused of witchcraft. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Oh, happily. So, so these witches in Navarre do things that have a very long tradition in Navarre, a folkloric tradition that is shared by all the inhabitants of Navarre, elites as well as popular classes. So these witches, um, not surprisingly, attack fertility. We know this to be a truism for witchcraft as a whole in Western Europe. They kill children. They kill crops. They kill animals. They cause weather magic. They gather together to venerate the devil which is what makes them heretics and which is how the Spanish Inquisition can be involved with them to begin with. So by venerating the devil, they by default abandon their baptismal vows as Christians and are worshiping the enemy of God. They're worshiping Satan. They have sex with Satan. They have dances. They are cannibals, which is a really interesting and a weird feature of witchcraft in Navarre. I have a colleague, Jan Mockelson, at the University of Cardiff at Wales, who says Navarre is the only place where adults are being cannibalized and practicing cannibalism. Um, Typically, witches consume children. They don't consume other adults. So that is a bizarre feature of witchcraft. So the way the witchcraft accusations tend to happen, they always center around harm to children, above all in Navarre. So a parent has a child get sick, or a child announces independently that he or she has been taken to worship the devil by someone in their particular village. That person, that witch can be male as well as female. There are many, many men accused in this witch hunt and in previous witch hunts. The parents become positively flabbergasted and typically they test their children for a period of time to see if the children are really telling the truth. And the fact that the children can maintain the stories for a significant duration of time with the same details helps convince the parents that the children are not lying. Thereupon, in my witch hunt from 1608 to 1614, it follows kind of a set routine. The parents test the children. The children remain stubborn and convincing in their stories. The parents then go out on the street and confront verbally the witch suspects. Typically, the witch suspects apologize, beg forgiveness, and the matter should be over at that moment. You have kind of like a public moment of reconciliation. In this witch hunt, however, the children continue to accuse, and the circle of accusations gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And as witches are accused, which suspects are accused, apologize, and then accused again, the villagers step up the measures and they begin to attack witch suspects physically. They imprison them. They torture them. The torture is completely illegal. Um, but the constables and the judges of these villages are, are involved. And I also should note that um, the villagers frequently seek permission to do this from Inquisition employees who are in the field. So the inquisitors are safely tucked away in their tribunal, miles and miles away from the epicenter of this persecution. But they have employees who are local people who speak Basque, who are embedded in Navarre. The Inquisitors wouldn't have hired them if they hadn't spoken Basque and had been embedded in Navarre because that's the only way they're useful. So these employees are not imported, they're locals. And the employees, based on what they later say in court, the employees felt that they were under so much pressure from these villagers, whom they know by name, that they finally say, okay, frighten them into confessions. And the villagers then begin to get creative with local torture techniques. And then eventually the witches do confess to having been witches. Um, and at that point, they are social pariahs and they are in a state of spiritual despair because witchcraft is um, an exceptional crime. It's an exceptional heresy. And local priests cannot absolve confessed witches of their sin. And those witches have to hang around in their villages. They're unable to receive any of the Catholic sacraments. They can't baptize their children. They can't get married. They can't receive the Eucharist until a representative from the bishop or an inquisitor happens through their village to reconcile them to the Catholic Church. So we end up with absolutely fractured villages across Navarre where a substantial portion of the village has confessed to witchcraft and is isolated and completely dishonored. And on the other hand, we may have accused witches who refuse to confess and who continue to receive the sacraments and go to mass. So it's, that's why I call it Village Infernos in the title. I think it's really hard to imagine just how socially and emotionally and spiritually devastating this witch hunt is. And uh, one of my main aims to the book was to store religion to our understanding of this persecution because my, my predecessors were not interested. And in fact, the language of spiritual warfare is embedded in all these documents. Um, and I should also note that some of the, some if not many, of the witches who are confessing seem to be absolutely convinced that they are witches. And so that raises really interesting points about self-identification and whether these witch suspects are putting, are coming to believe they're witches as they're tortured and interrogated, or whether they already were vulnerable to this kind of belief before the accusations mounted. Um, so that's fascinating. I have some women who should revoke their witchcraft confessions before inquisitors, and they don't do it. They refuse to alter their confessions to witchcraft. And that's a fascinating problem. Yeah. Why would they do that? What's... I don't know. I don't know. What's... I have a, I have a yeah, 30. What's the game there? I mean. Uh, well, you know, for the, for the children who announce that they're bewitched, they have a very bizarre and interesting kind of power in their villages. You know, somebody once asked me a number of years ago, what would be in it for these children to decide that they're being taken by witches to worship the devil? Well, here's the thing. The witches are never viewed as, sorry, the children are never viewed as guilty. They're viewed as victims, especially if they're 12 and under for girls and 14 and under for boys. So they are innocent and they're victims and they enjoy a really peculiar style of um, authority in their villages. 
because they can keep accusing and there is no legal mechanism to stop them. These children cannot be sued for defamation by calling someone a witch. Adults can be sued and subject to very harsh penalties for calling someone a witch, but there is no legal mechanism. You can't bring these children into court for the crime of slander. And so the children form this, like in Olagwe, the village of Olagwe, they form a pack. They are running through that village, accusing adults, and I think quite enjoying the process of accusing adults. And in some instances, it seems that they aim to ramp up the fear and anxiety in the community. I mean, they will announce that the, that the recently dead parish priest has been exhumed by witches and cannibalized. They will tell the parish priest that the witches are burning his portrait at the devil's gatherings and their witches are determined to kill the parish priest, but they can't quite manage to do it because the parish priest has so many crosses all over his house. I mean, their imaginations just go wild. Um, and I think they have um, a lot of fun with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds interesting for children. Um, but I'm, I'm interested because you described this process is very much community driven, right? This is, I mean, I, the very much comes from like, this is a, a an internal bottom up kind of thing. But the I'm, I'm seeing priests who are embedded in these, they're little communities. Everyone knows everyone. They how, do. does this, how does this work? Like, that's an interesting dynamic, right? Well, it is. And um, some wonderful scholars of witchcraft, like Robin Briggs um, and uh, James Sharp, have convinced us that witchcraft really depends upon neighbors. And then there are anthropologists from Africa, Peter Gashire, who think also that neighbor doesn't go far enough, that witchcraft really has to do with intimacy. And you can see this for witchcraft um, in Russia, for example, that it has to do with members of the household. Valerie Kibbelson, who's a wonderful historian of witchcraft in Russia, has proven that it's household members who frequently come under suspicion. So it's kind of a love-hate relationship with your neighbors and your family members. Because let's remember, witches stay in place. Witches are not heretics who move around. And witches don't have any quota on the number of children or adults they are taking and converting to the devil's service. So once these anxieties take hold and you have a definite belief in Satan, so I wouldn't want to make this look purely functionalistic or sociological as if you decide to scapegoat someone in your village. It's far more complex than that. And um, of course, the other thing that complicates the, the material here is that the witches in Navarre do not fit the paradigm of witches. They're not menopausal crones, and they're not poor, and they're not angry. We have pregnant women who are tortured. We have women who've just given birth who are tortured. We have rich women who are accused. We have widows who are accused. So it's a really polyglot body of individuals who are subjected to these accusations. And then there are the men who are subjected and tortured as well, of all ages and walks of life. Um, so I can't point to one single trigger for the accusations. Um, um, there, there isn't one. And in fact, we've kind of given up as historians of witchcraft in terms of finding single causes. We know that single causes don't work. And I know that's going to be unsatisfying I to mean, my that's, audience. That's a historical but, truism. Right. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just, there's not one single thing. Um, although you can often in other places, like there are, you can see, you know, there's, there's famine, there's, there's like unrest, there's something that's happening. But this seems to go on for long enough that it, it's not that either. There's no, no, like, um, the, the one a, thing I would, not, like, it's a real tough time. So, 
Well, the one thing I would say that is consistent has, has to do with children and hunger. So it seems very clear that people in Navarre are consistently hungry. And we know that children are bribed into accusations of witchcraft in this persecution through really minimal gifts of food. And so that is maybe a common cause vis-a-vis children. Um, in the village of Olagwe, a number of the children are threatened with physical violence. They're threatened with being clubbed to death or drowned if they don't accuse certain people in the village. So that we know is a matter of personal enmity playing out and taking advantage of the witch persecution that's going on more broadly. Um, so bribery, coercion. Um, the parish priest of Olagwe promises the child witches that when the witches are taken to Legroño by the Inquisition and burned at the stake, that the children will inherit the dead witch's property. Now, this priest has no legal ability whatsoever to make that pro- promise or to make it or make it happen, but the children believe that he does clearly, and so they joyfully accuse. And boy, do they stick to their um, they stick to their accusations. They're cross-examined by a whole bunch of legal authorities, and they stick to their stories, by and large. So. Though I have one, one young woman who's kind of the, the heroine of my story, Mary Martine, who's 13, who, can, who, acu- who accuses her mother in a single line in a trial. A month later comes back and speaks for literally five pages about how she was coerced into witchcraft accusations, how her father and her stepbrother threatened to drown her, etc. So there are moments of incredible bravery among these villagers, as well as people who are, you know, willing to be bribed or extorted into accusing. You know, I think this brings up another question that I think most of our listeners are going to have is like how much people believe in witchcraft, right? Like, cause we can talk about how it's, it's definitely functional, right? Mm-hmm. And you, often your neighbor's accused of witchcraft because you want her stuff or you're mad at her. But like, that doesn't mean that there's not a belief, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think it would be really anachronistic and, and acontextual to decide that there is not belief in witchcraft among every person involved in this persecution. And that goes for the bishop and the inquisitors and the leadership of the Spanish Inquisition. The reason this persecution stops has to do with legal proof, because one of the inquisitors, our buddy Salazar Frias, who's kind of the hero of the story, begins to hear confessions and begins to hear revocations to witchcraft confessions while he's on visitation in Navarre. He hears 81 people revoke their confessions to witchcraft. And Salazar is terribly interested in people's intentions and in their sense of spiritual grief And he notices all kinds of signs of contrition and truth-telling on the part of the people who are talking to him. And it convinces him that what they've been reading as proof isn't sufficiently proof-worthy, all right, in a nutshell. Um, They haven't had witnesses to witchcraft who are not witches themselves. They've been overly trusting of children they don't have ultimately any physical evidence because Salazar is conducting experiments while he's out on the road. He's looking at poisons that witches turn into him and he's testing the poisons as to whether or not they will work. He's going to locations where the devil's gatherings occurred and he's looking for trampled vegetation and he can't find any. Um, 
He can't find women who allegedly are breastfeeding snakes. He can't find the toads that are acting as um, guardian angels for the witchcraft. So he can't find ultimately any proof that responds to the human senses. And Inquisition cases have to be based on human sensory evidence. And so he goes back to his tribunal. He writes up a big report. His colleagues disagree. It takes two years to sort it out um, in terms of the Inquisition leadership. But my goodness, sort it out, they do. Because, Jana, I don't think I can adequately convey how astonishing it is that the Spanish Inquisition nullifies every single legal document produced in this persecution over eight years, over six years. It just doesn't happen. But they nullify all of it. They erase it as if it never was written. Um, so it's amazing. Um, could I also just note that another key that another key to why the leadership does this that we only learned about that I found by accident in 2020 is the notaries, the men who are responsible for taking down the depositions in the Inquisition Tribunal. They're called the notaries del secreto, which means that they are bound with the utmost secrecy not to divulge anything that they hear or anything that they learn. And their job is supposed to be inside that Inquisition tribunal, taking down testimony, taking down ratifications, um, uh, taking down, uh, you know, um, interviews. Well, lo and behold, the prosecutor for that same tribunal writes to the leadership in Madrid beginning in 1611 saying the notaries are rogue agents. They're not here. They're in Navarre. They've abandoned their positions. They're out in the field taking down genealogies to prove purity of blood for possible Inquisition employees in the future. And the prosecutor says the Inquisitors won't do anything about it. And he says the notaries are gone for months at a time, two, three, and four months at a time. So Jana, as a historian, how do you square the Inquisition's version of what's happening, which is the notaries are working around the clock with the prosecutor's statement that they're gone? So the, no, the prosecutor goes on to tell the leadership that the inquisitors have, quote, this is a direct quote, hired a bunch of assistant copyists. Who are these assistant copyists? Are they school children? Who are they? So I think that the leadership becomes convinced that even the production of the documents is completely untrustworthy. How I wish we had the Inquisition trials. Your readers, your listeners may not know that Napoleon's troops burned down the Inquisition Tribunal in 1808, the relevant one when they invaded. And so we've lost everything in terms of the witch trials. We have nothing. Um, all we have are documents that the tribunal sent to Madrid and documents that Madrid sent to the tribunal and kept as copies. But the idea that these witch trial transcripts could have been faked or forged or altered in some way by the notaries, it's amazing. It's amazing. So talk about the Inquisition not behaving in practice the way it's supposed to behave in theory. <laughs> this tribunal is a disaster. Yeah, for sure. You know, and we, we've got, and there are signs of this, right? We've got this all over in the documentary record. And for the most part, I don't want our listeners to think, you know, that we, we use faulty documents. Like, for the most part, we don't. But we know that there, there are forgeries. There are, I mean, there are bad documents out there. There are. There are. Um, it, it's, it's a big debate as to whether we should even be using Inquisition documents at all because of the Inquisitor's desire to hear certain things. And when our witnesses are deposing in Basque 
and their testimony is being translated for the historical record, what are the chances of it being altered as it's written down? My feeling is that because the testimony is read back to the defendants and the witnesses, and they have a chance to ratify it and change it, I feel fairly secure in using the documents as representations of what is said, um, although obviously they're written according to legal formulas and appearing before an inquisitor is never a casual matter. So people are under duress. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a lot of it too, is people are under duress. There are questions that are often very leading. But I mean, uh, the answer to that too is, well, then what? So we don't do that history? So we just let this story go completely untold? You nailed it. That's exactly our, that's our quandary for sure. Yeah. And so the, our job then is just to be very good. We just have to be very careful about the way we use our sources. But since there is no perfect source, there we go. Um, yeah, there we go. So I'm also interested in um, the term witch hunt. Right, like we that 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 right, you know, gets tossed around all over all the time in modern parlance. But we, um, when we talk about it historically, it's like a period of time as the witch hunts, um, and that's really contested, right? Do these exist? How many? Like, are they real? Are they that bad? Talk to me about that. How do you feel about the term witch hunt? And does it apply? Well, um, it's interesting. I've had a lot of really interesting conversations about this with Eric Middlefort, who is probably the Dean of Witchcraft Studies in America. He works on Germany. And I think for this particular persecution, Eric would be fine with me using the term witch hunt because of the number of victims, the duration, and especially, he says, the key detail is whether people run away. And I have dozens of people who run away, who run to France, who run to Aragon, who disappear um, from their villages because they're so terrified of being swept up in this. That being said, witch hunt can be used far too casually, um, especially when it comes to single isolated accusations in villages. And for Spain in particular, because witchcraft accusations and trials appear to be relatively few, my colleagues often invoke a rule of scale, which is if there aren't that many victims, we should be portraying witchcraft as routine, as um, um, minimal, as an everyday occurrence. And I still resist going in that direction in terms of calling it routine and everyday because I think people are not appreciating the, the depth of honor involved here in terms of the society. So I think the witchcraft accusations, even if they occur in the single digits, have devastating outcomes for someone, um, somewhere, for the people who are accused, um, whose social honor is really um, obliterated. And uh, it's also worth noting that we have many, many documents on defamation for witchcraft slurs that no one has ever read. Uh, the High Court of Appeals in Valladolid and the High Court of Appeals in Granada, they have multiple cases of defamation over witchcraft slurs and no one's ever read them. So in terms of, um, you know, we tend to, historians tend to look at trials only, but witchcraft needs to be seen with a broader gaze in terms of other crimes. And so I think we could learn a lot if some industrious graduate student went to work on those sources, that the paleography, the handwriting is really difficult, but it would be a very worthwhile area of research. Oh, yeah. 
oof, yeah, paleography. I mean, and I think there's also something to note here about, you know, you're talking about nursing snakes and sex with the devil and these kinds of things, you know, and then there's also, there is a much more quotidian version that's mm-hmm. about like selling love spells and helping, you know, this is, there's yes. a very different yes. like, situation. Yeah, there are different strata in terms of the severity of the witchcraft going on. You know, a cow could get sick, a crop could fail. There could be a hailstorm that wrecks your 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 um, your apple trees and your cider crop in this region, and you may you know, historians think that on for that stratum that they've hypothesized historians have that suspicions build over time for a really long period of time before people are willing to accuse their neighbors of of this kind of harmful magic. All right. Um, we don't see that kind of duration in this witch persecution at all. None of, I, if I go be so bold as to call them my witches, none of my witches um, possessed a reputation for witchcraft before they were accused, and none of them has witches in their genealogies. And so that, I think, is a sign of how off the charts bizarre this persecution is um, and how serious it is. Okay. And like I have one last question that I really, I want to think about what this means that it happens in this region. What does it mean that we have inquisitors coming into, to Navarre and Mm -hmm. like, what's the relationship between the local and the, like, and you know, the central government in Spain. Okay. So so, it is now Spain, you know? Sure. Sure. So I, I want to clarify that inquisitors all over the Spanish empire are interested in witchcraft as a heresy. And so witches are pursued in Mexico City, they're pursued in Lima, et cetera. Um, Here, there is a fatal disconnection between the inquisitors in the tribunal and the territory Navarre that they are supposed to be supervising because of distance. So really, distance demonstrates in this case, and geography, demonstrate in this case how an inquisition investigation can go off the rails because the inquisitors have no control over the people they're supervising and the people they're responsible for. They also um, know nothing about Navarre. They know nothing about Basque traditions of witchcraft, about Navarrese traditions of witchcraft. So had they known the folkloric background here, they might've been less willing to jump to their dire interpretations of what was happening, right? Um, Witchcraft in Navarre seems to be very much a community event where the accusations happen on the local level. You're accusing people from your own village. You're not accusing people from different villages. And public apologies um, bring back peace, all right? Bring back tranquility to the community. And that's how this witch hunt starts, is that a young woman accuses some 10, 20 people of witchcraft in the village of Zugura Murti. The individuals accused confess and apologize to their neighbors in church, And the whole matter should have been done, except somebody in that village forwarded an account to the inquisitors in Logroño. And they sent out agents to arrest those individuals and bring them to the tribunal. And so that's how the whole thing gets going, is the inquisitors intervene in the community event. They don't understand the community event. They become convinced it is diabolical heresy, which, you know, based on the description, any theologian in any Christian tradition in this time period would have thought it was heresy, given what these witches allegedly are doing. And so they jumpstart the process. Um, 
And they are so very, very, very stubborn for basically two and a half years about issuing what we call an edict of grace, which would allow suspected witches to come to them, confess, and be reconciled to the church. An edict of grace allows heretics to be forgiven without necessarily a penalty if they come and confess voluntarily. But two of the three um, inquisitors in this tribunal want to punish. They are much more focused on the punitive function of the Inquisition than its pastoral function, which is to reconcile sinners to the church. And so it, um, it's a long, drawn-out process when it shouldn't have been. I mean, I would say, um, as, as devastating as this persecution is, one of the things that fascinates me is how in the world does it end? Um, how, does this, how does this social and this village infernos come to an end? Um, we have all kinds of evidence that some of the villages are depopulated, literally, as the persecution is winding down, where out of 36 homes, only nine are occupied. Out of 24 homes, eight owners are missing. We don't know where they went. We don't know if they ever came back. I have a husband of an accused, tortured witch who abandons her um, in 1612 and leaves the village. Uh, so there's just a lot of social angst going on here. Um, and so uh, it would be fascinating to keep plugging away in the archives to see if we can find ever more information on how things settled down. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many axes there. This, like the the individuals, the individuals, the people in this community. But then you've got like you know, you can have a rogue, a rogue ex community or a rogue inquisitor, Grace. and yeah, yeah, this yeah, is going to throw things off. That's right. That's right. You can. I mean, one of my colleagues, um, Amanda Scott at Penn State, is desperate for me to find out what happens to the child witches, whether their dis, whether their honor is affected long term. Do the child witches marry each other? Do they reintegrate into these communities? We just haven't found the right kind of documents yet to tell us what happens there. Yeah, I would love to know that too. What What are the long-term repercussions? How do you trust someone later than like, you know, and what, what kind of scarring does that do? Yeah. Yeah. So is that, is that it? Um, is that what is next for you? Are you going to do some more work on witches? Well, as a matter of fact, I'm finishing a primary source reader uh, about the child witches of Olague. It's due to Penn State University Press at the, beginning of, at the beginning of March. I'm really, really excited about it. So we're going to put together testimony by child witches and their victims in Olague, as well as the divorce case from Olague against this poor beleaguered woman who's set up by her stepson and her second husband. So I'm hoping it will be used in high schools and colleges. And after that, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to go next. I'm really interested in the use of forensic evidence um, by ordinary, illiterate, Basque-speaking villagers in these trials. And so I think there are, I think I will take a little time and ponder in terms of what the next project will be. Oh, very cool. That sounds really interesting. You know, Penn State University Press is doing some really great things for the field of history. The, the Latin American original series is really good. Yeah, and the and my series, the Iberian Encounter and Exchange, which is um, edited by Aaron Rowe and Michael Ryan, um, has published has been publishing some amazing studies um, for early modern Iberia. So worth checking out. Yeah, early like their contrib their contribution to early modern studies is really worth noting. So 
Let, yeah, so we just did. Well done. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Luann, thank you. I have taken more than enough of your time. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, listeners, I cannot be more clear. Go read this book, Village Infernos and Witches Advocates. It is fascinating. It's really fun. It's really well written. Um, and it's a, it's a great scholarly work, but you also get really good stories. So I don't know who's not going to like this book. Um, and I'm, I personally am excited to check out your new, your next volume, your next volume of primary source material. Well, thank you so much, Jan. It's been All a right. pleasure. Thanks very much. You. All right. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.